Hi everyone, welcome to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we interview Asian entrepreneurs and professionals around the world. And for this season, we're going to take our conversations deeper about our Asian identity and hustle stories. We also want to announce that we are hosting our first ever Asian Hustle Network Uplifted Conference next spring in Las Vegas. For more info and to reserve your seats, check out our website at asianhustlenetwork.com. Don't forget to grab a copy of our recently released book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, which tells the personal stories of how 21 Asian American entrepreneurs are shifting culture. You can order it on our website as well. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi everyone, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us. His name is Kevin Lee. Kevin is a co-founder of IMI, a better-for-you Asian-American food brand that creates the world's first low-carb, high-protein, and 100% plant-based instant ramen. Previously, he led food and beverage investing as a principal VC at Peer Ventures and is an angel investor in 30-plus companies. Prior to investing, he built the world's largest online product manager community and worked as a product manager at Alt School and Kabam. He grew up in a food family, helping his grandparents harvest rose apples from the produce farms in Taiwan. Kevin, welcome to the show. Kevin, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Thank you so much for having me, man. It's, it's an honor to be here. We're so excited to have you on. Like I said before the podcast, our team has been keeping an eye on you. And it's like, dude, we're so impressed by everything you've done so far. And we want to take this opportunity to hear more about your story. So tell us about your upbringing and what that was like. Yeah, thank you so much, Ryan. I was born uh, an only child of two Taiwanese immigrant parents. So they came over from Taiwan. Pretty similar story, I'm, I'm imagining to most people on this podcast. You know, the typical immigrant struggles came here with, you know, no financial, no social capital. And I think they do a thing that most immigrant parents do, which is like they'll leave you with your grandparents back in Asia. So definitely spent a good portion of my childhood uh, with my grandparents out in Taiwan, where they own like a produce farm. So they grow something called rose apple. If anyone's listening, it's called a lian wu, which is like a wax apple. Tastes rose amazing, apple. by the way. Tastes amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so I was oftentimes just like in the fields running around, like helping them like harvest the fruit. And in the US, yeah, I grew up in San Jose, which is in California. And honestly, it was, a, I can't complain. I think I had a great childhood, two loving parents. And that's the most that you can really ask for. I like that story a lot, man. And that really relates to, and we'll get into this later about what you're working on right now. You know, finding the inspiration from your family to create what you're doing is a wonderful mission. But man, like we had an opportunity to look through your LinkedIn, look through your resume, Google your name, and you're like, you've done so much in such a short amount of time, right? So I want to hop into your first job and how that shaped you to become the entrepreneur you are today. But also we want to talk a little more about, and I want to give this away to our listeners too, that you invested into over 30 startups already. That's insane, mm-hmm. right? Thank so you. let's talk about your first job and how that shaped you to become the entrepreneur that you are today. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. My first job was, it was in finance. So back in 2012, when I graduated, I went into technology investment banking because I, I was fascinated with the technology industry, but I wasn't like an engineer, computer scientist or anything. And 
it was in Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, out in Palo Alto. So I was right next to like the Stanford campus. I would walk onto campus every weekend and just like knock on doors, try to like see if professors would let me like come into the lab so I could just like learn about what they were building. I lasted about eight months. I think truth be told, it was, it wasn't necessarily the hard work that bothered me. It was that whenever I talked with any of like the associates or the VPs, they actually didn't know much about the technology industry. And it just made me realize like, why am I going this weird circumvented like way uh, to get to what I was particularly interested in. So I luckily was living with a roommate at the time who was, I know I'm kind of jumping the gun here, but basically just I think- Just uh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good because I think definitely, obviously like I think most people go into banking, they, they learn the value of hard work and detail-orientedness. And I think that's all, those are all valuable skill sets, but more than anything, it just influenced me in knowing that like, you know, sometimes when you know what you want to do, you just got to go for it. You don't need to take like the multiple steps, i.e. like, you know, some people want to go to business school before they launch into starting a company. I think there's no better present time than, than now to go do what you want to do. So yeah, I think one day I woke up, it's decided like, this isn't for me. There was a client of ours at the bank called Kabam at the time. It was a mobile gaming company. I think, you know, maybe some of the founders you're probably well aware of, they were Berkeley co-founders, but mobile gaming was interesting to me because I grew up playing games. It was like, you know, when you're an only child, your parents don't speak like English is not their first language. They're trying to figure their way out in America. It's hard for you to just like, you know, learn things yourself. And so I kind of resorted to like making friends on the internet. And I think that actually ended up being a super useful skill set, just being able to make friends easily and not stress out about social situations, obviously all online, which is kind of where the world is heading anyways. But yeah, I think long story short, moved into Kabam, which was in my first product management experience. And then that kind of kicked off a whole journey into like the tech space. That's amazing. I think Kabam is a great, great company to be a part, part of, right? Because I feel like, what is it? The, the co-founder was Asian, Holly Lee Lou or mm-hmm. something. And now she's doing yeah. like, a, like an Asian American sort of fund or something. But Definitely. yeah, like, man, like that's, that's awesome to hear about finding and understanding that this is, isn't for me. Cause I think a lot of us, especially graduating around like 2010, 2011, 2012, the economy wasn't that great yet. Right. So having yeah. the luxury of like, I don't like this job. I want to find a new one. It's like <laughs> almost unheard of. Just to frame things in context for people that are listening to the podcast about how different that time period is compared to, well, kind of similar to now, but like a couple of years earlier from now, it's like when the job market is great. Okay. Yeah. I want to leave my job every one or two years and find something else. That's, that's new. Right. Definitely. But back in like 2010, 2011, 2012, doing this is like, what? Like we're all struggling <laughs> to find a job and here you are quitting. <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds terrible. I'm like so ungrateful. <laughs> no, but that led you down a really, really awesome path in your life and your career at least. But, you know, I, I think the one part of your resume that really stands out to me is how connected you are to the community in San Francisco Bay area. It's like, man, like you practically know everyone there. I think it's partially like, you know, I've grown up here my entire life. I went to school here. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why we were talking earlier, like I'm excited to move to New York for a while. And then I'll be coming back though, of course, to raise kids, but it's just going to be nice (laughs) to get out of this, uh, this bubble that I've created. (laughs) I I can always bet money. You're not coming back. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) You're going to be in New Jersey, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, God, no. (laughs) No offense to anyone listening from there. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But yeah, let's talk a little bit more about your career after being a product manager, right? Mm -hmm. And joining the VC world. And particularly joining yeah. ParaVC as a principal investor. That's that's crazy. Like, how'd you get yourself into venture capital? Yeah, it's an interesting story. So I, you know, I this is something I discovered hindsight 2020, but in 
the early part of my career, especially even just like entering finance, I would say admittedly, it was probably a more like inwards, inwardly, maybe even like selfishly focused career path for myself, where I think even when I was in banking, I personally, I love education. I've always loved teaching. I taught through like college, even in high school, I taught. And after banking, I had originally like, I know I talked about mobile gaming, but I actually wanted to work in like education tech for a while. And when I interviewed for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I like got to the final round and they were basically just like, you don't have enough operating experience. And I went to Kabam and I loved Kabam and I learned a lot. But after Kabam, I really wanted to get back into more of like a mission driven space. And so I went to this company called Alt School, which was education tech. I was a PM there as well. We were building software and hardware for the education industry and also like building these private schools to test all of our products. And there I came to realize like I had swung way too far to the impact side of things. And I think when I went to venture, it was almost like my whole career path has been swinging from spectrum to spectrum. And that's kind of what life is, right? It's it's almost like Pandora, you upvote and downvote and then it kind of like fine tunes the algorithm. So banking wasn't it for me. You know, product management was good, but it wasn't like you know, I think ed tech wasn't that either. And so venture capital was, again, a swing back to the other side where I thought, hey, maybe the highest leverage thing I can do is invest in companies that I feel are like doing good for this world. And uh, Pear was an interesting story too, because I had worked at another fund called Funders Club beforehand. And I had gotten to know the Pear team when I was working at Funders Club, I was also running like a side business at the time called Product Manager HQ. It was this education media company. We built like the world's largest community for product managers. And I remember when I was still at Funders, like the associate on the pair team randomly like tried to buy one of my courses and she sent an email and she's like, Hey, can I get a discount? I'm trying to like learn product management so I can help our portfolio companies. And when I saw her email, like it was Pair used to be called pagemonandmar.com. I was like, oh my God, I've read this guy's Pagemon story. For any listener, Pagemon is like this legendary dude who escaped the war in Iran, What came to America homeless, like worked at a yogurt shop then worked at like a rug store selling rugs. And then this was like back in like early nineties, there was like no angelist or anything. So he would literally go to all these VC and like tech founders homes and sell rugs to them. And then he discovered that like, that's where like all the, you know, innovation was happening and he convinced the rug store owner to open a fund with him and invest in like startup founders. And he became like the first angel investor in Dropbox and like, like six different unicorns. So he, that's how he started pair. But I always thought he was like the definition of the American dream, like the immigrant hustle. And so long story short, coming back to this story, well, when that associate reached out, I was like, oh my God, I love Pageman's story. Like my parents are like Taiwanese immigrants. They came here with nothing. Just take the course, like take anything you need, like from, you know, product manager HQ for free. You know, don't worry about it. I just want to help you guys. And I think this is like a story of just like karma and like everything will always come full circle. That happened like maybe like three years past. But then, you know, when I went, when I went and I reached out to them, I remember being able to talk to like the other partner, Mar, she's the other co-founder with Pageman, And she was like, oh yeah, like, yeah, I heard about this story from our associate and yeah, I think like it's a, it's just like an example of goodwill. And so always like pay it forward. You never know what's going to happen. That's an amazing story. And that's a story where I feel like you deserve a lot of credit too, because it takes preparation that to know your situation and what you're in in order to be put yourself in the right position. Right. Because a lot of people be sure. like, oh, wait, who is this person? Okay, never mind. Just someone asking for a free course. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Definitely. But it, it, it speaks volumes to your own awareness of your own surroundings of you know, doing your own homework and knowing a general idea of where you're trying to go. I think mm-hmm. that matters a lot to like leverage everything that comes your way and turn that into golden opportunity like like you did, right? Definitely. And let's talk a little bit more about your career as a VC, right? Because mm-hmm. 
So when you invested in 30 companies, was that through Pair? Is that through your own personal money? So um, the 30 companies is my personal money. That's Pair insane. Club. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, I can talk more about that in a second too. But yeah, at Pair and at the fund, I don't remember how many investments I did, but we did mostly early stage. So it was always like pre-seed or seed. That's honestly my favorite stage. At the pre-seed, it's literally like one or two founders working out of their garage. I remember I used to go to some of our Pair portfolio companies and they were in their garage working and I would go sit with them for the whole day and just like help them, co-work with them, try to be part of the team. So I love that stage. That's awesome to hear, man. And how do you feel that experience has shaped you to become the founder you are today? Because I was reading your Crunch article earlier. Dude, you have a whole army of Asian American founders backing your current <laughs> company. I'm just like, how many For are sure. there? I'm like counting like 10, 15, 20. I was just like, dude. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, I remember, oh man, that was such a good time. I think you know, a lot of people don't enjoy the fundraising process, but I'm a naturally pretty like extroverted person. I love, I think talking with people is just like, it's in my DNA. And I think that's why I really enjoyed venture is I felt like I was constantly in my zone of genius where, you know, you go out, you talk with people, you get to meet people, you get to learn from like the best and brightest in this world. So when it came time to, to raise for Emmy, and I'm sure we'll get into that whole thing. It was so natural. It was like, I would hit up uh, friends, like, um, you know, we went to like, I went to like Kevin Lin's house at Twitch. Like, you know, it was like early morning. We just like, I brought him some noodles. He ate them. We just like shot the shit. And then he was like, yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. And just like, that was kind of <laughs> the, like the whole process. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Like Jason Wang too of Caviar. Like he has been a long time friend. And I remember it was so random. I was like walking on Embarcadero and I saw his co-founder, Sean. And I was like, yo, Sean, like, what are you doing in town? He's like, oh yeah, me and Jason are like in town. So I texted Jason. I was like, yo, you want to get drinks? And over drinks, I was like, let me tell you about this instant ramen company that I've been building or this like idea I have. And, and then Jason was like, well, that's super cool. And then I was like, yo, do you want to invest? And he was like, yeah, of course I'm in. And so it's been an honor, honestly, to have a lot of like good friends, especially like Asian American founders, just be a part of this. Definitely feel the support. And, you know, we we're trying to just like rise and tie together for everyone. Yeah, that's awesome. I, yeah, I'm still looking at the Thrive Market Caviar Daring Foods, half Mad Happy Twitch, Kettle on Fire, and the list is going on and on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, man. Yeah. yeah. I, I also, I, I feel bad because I couldn't include everyone on that list, but um, it's, yeah. it's like, a, we have a great group of, of people for sure. Yeah, um, dude, it's just, honestly, like, it's, I'm glad you see the positive side of fundraising because that's something that a lot of founders dread. And it, frankly, mm-hmm. it's sort of against Asian culture too to go out there and ask for money, right? It really is. That actually, you bring up a good point. I think the funny thing is, I wonder if Jason will ever listen to this one day, Jason Wang from Caviar. The first time, so when I actually got drinks with him, the the ask I made was not actually for him to invest. It was like, Jason, like, I love your support. Would you be interested in being an advisor? Because in my head, I was like, oh man, you're the first person I'm going to. Like, I don't really want to ask for your money. You're like a friend. But then I came home and then I was texting with my buddy, Tiffany Zong. She's like a, she was like the world's youngest VC when she was like 18. Yeah, And she was like, yo, what are you doing? Like, just ask him, like, don't worry. Like, don't, don't have like the, the Asian like values of like humility and like, and I was like, you know what? You're right. And so I texted him. I was like, yo, Jason, like you're, you're already an advisor. Like you're just investing. He's like, yeah, of course. Like it wasn't even, it was like a blink for him. And I think that really taught me a lot about like, just, you know, know your worth and go ask. You just always got to make the ask. Yeah, uh, absolutely agree with that statement. It's, it's sort of like the same when I was fundraising Asian Hustle Network. Yeah. I was like, I, I spent like a year hesitating, right? a year and a half like hesitating. I was like, ah, oh, they won't invest into this until, <laughs> until I started asking legitly like five people, would you guys invest? And 
mm-hmm. and that round me over subscribed and pissed off some people. <laughs> oh, crap. oh man, that's amazing though. <laughs> and crap, I don't know how to fit you all. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good problem. We, we call them champagne problems. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the more the story behind this, like build a good reputation and because that goes a long way. Like if you have a bad reputation, you ask for money, no one's going to give you money, right? Exactly. You, have a, you have a very exactly. good reputation and you know how to ask and not mm-hmm. like, don't, don't rudely ask and so abruptly ask to be like, I like, you know, just like curiously <laughs> yeah, ask yeah. with like a deck and be like professional about it and be ready. It's like, yeah, most likely they'll believe into you. They know your background. They will invest into your company, right? And that goes a long totally. way. Absolutely. And always give them an out too. I don't, yeah. I think, like you said, like, you know, you can always add that, Hey, no pressure at all. Totally understand if like, it's not the right time. Like I completely understand and you de- you got to give them the out. So, yeah, definitely. Well, I want to say congratulations on your $3.8 million raise last year. Thank you. Thank you. Huge. I think that's even before we started chatting, but I definitely saw that article. So I'm very happy thank for you, so you guys. Much. So let's talk a little Appreciate more about your, your company, dude. And yeah, I love the mission behind <laughs> it. Tell us about your mission and like what you plan to do with the company. And I still want to hear more about it. For sure. It's funny because like people they always ask like, hey, are you and your co-founders like chefs? Are you guys like food scientists? And I think for anyone listening, like we didn't have any background in this industry. I think obviously my grandparents are produce farmers, but you know, running a farm is completely different than running like a CPG food company. And also when I was helping them, I was just like sitting on like a stool, like harvest, you know, like packaging fruit. It's a very different business. I mean, when you're sitting in like the Taiwan summer heat, it's not, you know, doing e-commerce or anything like that. So definitely think that uh, it's possible to do like something in a completely foreign industry. In fact, it's sometimes even better. I've learned because you really just approach things from first principles. You're really ignorant, so like you don't care about what the experts have to say. And I think that's that'll propel you a lot further. But bringing it back, so my co-founder and I were both named Kevin's, which makes it kind of confusing. And that's why, like online, you always hear us use like Kaylee or K Chan. We basically append our last names. Him and I, we met at Kabam around ten years ago, and we were like the first two PMs because. We used to work on the same team together and they would, we would go to Vancouver for one of our projects and we didn't know each other that well back then. So like I had just joined the team. We, we flew to Vancouver. I, I had a feeling he didn't even really like me that much, to be honest, because we we're like very opposite working styles. And I think on his perspective, he was just like, oh man, there's another Kevin. Like now I got to deal with like another Kevin using us. But one day we showed up in the morning at like the same noodle restaurant, like the student uh, noodle joint. And we were like, yo, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, I just want to get some noodles for breakfast. And that kind of became our thing where we were like the two PMs who would go get noodles for breakfast. And it kind of just like, I bring up that story because it's funny how like all things come full circle, but it was over the course of these 10 years of our friendship. And he later became my roommate that we discovered that we have very similar family backgrounds. So like his grandmother also sold noodles out of a hawker stall in Thailand. His dad sold noodles out of like an Asian restaurant in LA. And both of our families have very high rates of chronic health conditions. So like most Asians in Asian communities and families, diabetes, high blood pressure are like the two most prevalent things in both of our families. So a couple of years back, we started talking about this and we said, well, why, you know, why hasn't someone built like a leading better for you Asian American food brand? Because, you know, we knew we wanted to start a food company. We knew we wanted to do a healthy product, but we didn't want to do just another like protein bar company with American flavors. We wanted to incorporate the things that we knew that we grew up with, things that uniquely we could do because of our, our cultural upbringing. So that started as the thesis and instant ramen was 
you know, people are always like, oh, did you do all this market research? Do you like dig into the data because you're a VC? I was like, no, we, we met in my like my apartment and we were like, yeah, what do you, what do you want to work on? And I was like, you know, I, we both love noodles, <laughs> like, but noodles always make us feel like super bloated. And like when you look at our families, like because it's always just like a refined white carbs and noodles, that's probably what's contributing alongside with like rice and, and other things to the, the prevalence of these chronic health conditions. So that's literally how we landed on instant instant ramen. There was no deeper research. And I'm not sure if that's the best way to do it, but truth be told, it was fun for us because it's like a product we love. It's a product that we knew our parents would eventually eat and you don't have to educate people. So that's kind of the genesis. You asked about the mission. It's interesting. I've learned a lot about just like brand ideals. I didn't come from the food industry. I didn't come from the consumer branding world. In tech, you don't really think about things like brand that much that often, unless you're like maybe a brand marketer by training. At IMI, we've gone through several different iterations. I think now we're comfortable saying that our mission is to embolden people to play by their own rules in life. And at first glance, you're like, oh my God, that's such like a high level statement. It's like Nike's, you know, just do it or something. But it, it means I think every single word we've picked there is very important to us because Kajin and I, you know, we've, we started, we met each other at a mobile gaming company. Like we love like playing, just like having fun while we're doing things is so important to us. We, we, we had this amazing culture at Kabam where we've always tried to re recreate that culture in, in future companies. And we just never could because it was like an environment where you'd walk in and you'd be excited to go into work every day. It was just like fun. We were working on fun things that we cared about. And I think with Emmy, people always told us like all the food scientists, all the experts, all the chefs said, there's no way you can do this. Like from like food physics perspective, like it's not like tech where you can like develop a new programming language. Like you're capped. You cannot create a low carb, high protein, plant-based product with these kind of macros and this kind of like texture and taste. And we kind of were just like, you know what, screw it. We're just going to mess around in the kitchen and have a lot of fun. And we were able to make it. And I think it's because we were playing by our own rules that we were able to innovate and invent something that this world hasn't seen before. And so, you know, I, I encourage everyone listening is like, you know, find, find like that mission for your company that is uniquely like suited to you as a founder too. It just makes everything, it aligns everything it really matches like our products too, because instant ramen used to be like this guilty food pleasure that you could only eat like secretly at night when you're nothing else. But I think now like you can eat ramen whenever you want with Emmy. Like you can literally eat it for breakfast, like for lunch. You don't have to feel bad about it. It's good for you. Like you can add any toppings you want. You can mess around with it. So I think it really like fits the pieces of our product development too. I love everything about that story and your mission as well. Like I love the fact that I really like the fact that you let nothing hold you back from creating this product, right? Because I think a lot of us as first-time founders, it's like we ask for expert advice, quote unquote. And, you know, sometimes, honestly, I feel like as human nature, it's like it's so easy for people to steer towards, no, that's not possible. Don't even right. try it. But <laughs> I feel like inner, true innovation happens with pure ignorance, which is you know, like, had you known the steps before, I don't think you would have taken that risk because for sure. But if you don't know enough and you're like, you know what, I'm just going to figure it out. Like have fun with that. Nothing's going to stop me. That's where true innovation happens. It's where you do, you do the possible when people thought it was impossible. Mm -hmm. Right. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah. I really like that, that factor a lot. And for the people listening, especially like first time early stage founders, trust your gut. That's, that's my mm -hmm. advice. Trust your gut. Exactly. There's, there's no one because the honest truth is like no one can see the vision as much as the founders can definitely right? and that goes a long way of like self-belief being a little foolish being a little creative mm -hmm. and just find your own way there's also i think there's one thing i want to add to this which is 
Growing up as like the only child of immigrant parents, especially like Asian parents, I think a lot of times, especially when I was investing, I saw I saw a clear delineation where non-Asian founders culturally, I think there's just like something different where, you know, when they're raised, they don't have to like worry about like taking care of their parents or not that they don't have to, but it, I think it's just like a different culture for, for anyone listening to this. I'm sure you're all well aware that in Asian culture, it's like we have that idea of you know, you grow up, you still got to make sure that your family is okay. Filial piety, you know, it's, it's like that term. And I think because of that, it creates a different risk tolerance sometimes for founders. But I would encourage you to just like think about that a little bit more because ultimately a lot of Asian parents, this is going to sound terrible. They don't want you to be happy per se. They just don't want to see you suffer. And it's because of that like upbringing they had. But I think you have to really unlearn a lot of these things. I think they serve great purposes, but especially in America where you look at like other cultures, maybe even like anything non-Asian culture where the values of like humility, like are actually not as important of a value. Like you need to get rid of that because that's what's going to enable you to succeed in this society. Of course, you have to be humble and hungry, but I just think that culturally, there were a lot of things that held me back even from starting Emmy. And I think that in hindsight, I probably could have started this company years earlier, but instead I just kept telling myself stories like, oh, I want to make some more money make sure that I can take care of my family or, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm worried about their like X, Y, and Z. But a lot of those things you kind of have to just like put it to the side. And like you said, like, you just gotta, you gotta go for it. <laughs> so I can't agree with that statement anymore than what you yeah. said. Right. Because I think that culturally there's a lot of stuff that needs to unlearn. And <laughs> frankly, it's not like, you know, it sounds really bad, but like, I feel like a lot of Asian culture is, is great, but like to like become an entrepreneur, it's like a really foreign concept, especially like mm-hmm. a tech entrepreneur where it's right. You have to unlearn a lot of things like asking for money, raising money, asking for help. Like exactly my personal upbringing. It's like my parents taught me that asking for help was a sign of weakness. Yeah. Right. So for the longest time throughout my childhood, no matter how, what I was working on, I kept saying I was fine. I don't, I don't need help because I didn't for want to sure. come off as weak. Right. But that's like exactly. the opposite of success. Success yeah. is like about asking for help. And asking you want to ask every day. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's so true, man. It's in the beginning of starting this company, I refused to like text people, like text my friends for help. And then now I'm just like, oh man, I text you all day. If you, if you let me text you, I'm going to text you. I'm going to ask yeah. you for things. So definitely, yeah. I, I definitely agree with that statement a lot. And I mean, lately, I, we started using TikTok a lot more for Asian Hustle Network, and we see awesome. your ads everywhere. Oh. <laughs> and it starts as, hi, we're the Kevins. We're the Kevins. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's, it's so funny because, so I had, I had randomly, I know that a lot of companies, when they start TikToks, they always start with like the founder story TikTok. And I remember telling K-Chan one day in the office, I was like, yo, I, I really think I, you know, we should make one of these. I have a good idea. It could be super low budget. We'll just like stitch together a bunch of photos. And we posted on TikTok and it bombed. It got like 2000 views. But then I was thinking about it. And I was like, you know what? Maybe we should test this in paid ads. You just never really know. And that one ended up being such a crazy winner. It's like our evergreen. It's just performed well across like every channel. And I think um, I've had friends just like randomly DM me and be like, yo, I see like, you know, the, the Kevin's thing, the ad. And I'm like, whoa, we never got this reaction from anything else before. So it's just nice to imbue a little bit of like storytelling into paid ads. Yeah, I agree with that statement. Lately, we've been using the one thing that Asian House Network is prideful for like the last or like the first two years. It's like, oh, yeah, like we grew organically to 100,000, 150,000 members. They don't need paid ads. Honestly, paid ads is a hack. 
Like we, now that we're using it to like promote our conference, which we have in April 2029 of this year. And like our, our book, it's like the conversion rates is really, really good. And it's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's so crazy because you know, when I started my first business, the product manager HQ one, I took so much pride in being like, oh, I grew up purely on SEO. I didn't use it. I didn't, haven't spent any money on paid uh, yeah, that's, the past that's, six that's years. Un, that's unneeded pain, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, and like now in hindsight, I'm like, oh my God, those were like the golden years for paid ads. Like this is another cultural value where in my mind, I was like, that's debt. You know, like using paid ads is putting myself in this debt and where I need to like, not even invest, like I need to spend the money and I don't know if I'm going to get a return. And I, I don't want to do that because I've always been taught to like, no, you know, my, my dad was always like, never let yourself get in debt, pay everything in cash. But you know what? That's what like, that's the yeah. opposite of like building wealth. It's like, exactly. it's not the opposite, but like you got to use leverage. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, smart leverage, right? Smart like, leverage, correct. I don't want to say the wrong art. I don't want to tell everyone to get into debt. That's terrible advice. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think you have a clear vision of like what is going out what can potentially come in and that's a great way to think of it right mm -hmm. but you have to understand where our parents mindset is like what comes out might never come back in <laughs> exactly no i know i feel like it's unfair almost for me to say these things it's like you always want the best for your next generation and yeah i'm sure there's going to be things i tell my kids where when they grow up they're like oh my god i gotta unlearn all those things that dad told me um, yeah. but it's just based on the situation they grew up in you're totally right yeah yeah i mean that's, that's a great segue to talk a little bit more about like off topic topic about yourself Right. And mm -hmm. the reason why I say this, because I, I think I saw a post on LinkedIn, like maybe last year or a couple, couple mm -hmm. of months back about you mentoring someone and getting yeah. lunch with him and him For coming sure. back a couple of years later. And then you realize he's outgrown you. And that's a, honestly, as a mentor, that's the best thing that could happen to you. Right? It and it's a great feeling. Yeah. I want to ask more about like who have mentored you in the past in terms of like, helping you understand your own personal development and get leveling up in career. And I feel like the biggest issue with our community is that the word mentor is often thrown around a lot. Like go find a mentor, go find a mentor. But the truth is a lot of us are really shy to find people and ask for help. Or if they do find people, mm -hmm. it, it goes straight to a taking relationship where it's like, tell me all your knowledge now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. So I want to hear some of your, your personal experience and advice regarding finding the proper mentors to succeed. Yeah, this is interesting. It's I've had a lot of different mentors over the past decade. And man, there's like too many to list. There's a lot of mentors that I look up to, like Eric Bond over at Hustle Fund is one of these guys where I've known him for many, many years. He, The reason I treat him like a role model is because he's not just like, when I think of someone who's like a mentor, they're not someone who's just like one avenue, like, oh, they're like a business mentor. That, that's all I care about. I think when I look at someone like Eric, he is an amazing like father. He's an amazing husband. And of course, like very business savvy, you know, started his own venture fund, started his own company, sold it. But I look at everything in tandem where I don't want to grow up to be like someone who only has one thing, right? Business success, super lonely, kind of depressed. Like it's not what I'm looking for. I want a well-rounded life. Those are my priorities, a like, great family. I want to be there for them because that's what my family, my parents did for me. And I think them giving me that strong foundation was the most important thing they could have done. I didn't care if we didn't have money growing up. I didn't care if we had, like, I didn't have a car or anything. Like the fact was like that love was the most important thing. And so I actually haven't spoken to Eric in quite some time, which is why like, when you asked me that question, I was like, man, I feel super guilty. Like I really should be like reaching back out to a lot of these people. Cause we're all kind of just doing our own things now. But, you know, I think he's just like someone who, when he lives his life, and I watch him post pictures of him and with his kids. I'm like, man, I really admire you because you're able to balance everything. 
I don't need you to be like the Bill Gates or like Steve Jobs. You know, you don't need to be a billionaire in my mind, Like you're already a billionaire. The way like everything about your life, you're going to die a very happy man and you're going to leave a legacy for your kids. And that's amazing to me. So I, I can think of like countless examples like him, but I'm just going to kind of leave that one there. Yeah. Yeah. Eric's, Eric's a great guy. If you guys don't know who he is, he's the founder of Hustle Fund. He's supportive of early stage founders. I love his, the mission was fun. I believe it's investing to hilariously early stage companies. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, that's great that you're able to like find mentors that you look up to because that does go a long way. And that's one of the reasons why we advocate that representation does matter. Like we need people that look <laughs> like us and sound like us, right? And most importantly, we need to be able to relate to people that we, that we look up to and listen to. And as I stated before the podcast, is that oftentimes we think these founders have some sort of superpower that they have some sort of edge over the average person. But deep down, as you talk to more more founders and understand the ecosystem so really no one really knows what they're doing at all times yeah right not at all times but most of the time they don't don't know what they're doing (laughs) and it's all all, like unfortunately it's all like a front right it's like oh you want exactly you want other people to see that we do know what we're doing but internally the decision making we all go through our own internal struggles internal thoughts internal doubts that we all face Mm -hmm. that we all we're human at the end of the day we feel these emotions vividly we feel depression we feel anxiety we feel sadness like you feel upset like mm-hmm. no matter how successful you are and the next question i want to ask is how do you take care of yourself kevin like it's just okay for you to share like what has been like your yeah. lowest lows and your highest highs and we know as in the startup world this happened in an instant like you have the best yeah. morning and the worst afternoon you're like what the hell <laughs> <laughs> no exactly that's how you feel every day so it's, it's crazy <laughs> yeah so there's definitely like a practice that i started I will admit I'm not much of like a meditator. It's something that I'm like trying to do or sorry, I I thought I could do, but man, it's really hard for me. What I find helpful is I do this like a weekly reflection every Saturday morning. First thing I do when I wake up is I, I have this like template uh, on my notion. I've kind of like changed it up over, over the past, or it took me a while to get to where it is today, but it's a very long doc that I answer a set of questions. And it really is just a way for me to do a retrospective of the past week you know, it always has like a button that's, it's like, how are you feeling? So you can, you know, put down like excited, nervous, anything like that. It asks me, you know, like, what was I grateful for that week? Like, who was a person that I really enjoyed meeting? It's just like a, it's almost like I'm doing therapy session with myself because it forces me to seriously think about things. Like when it asks me, like, what is the one thing you did this week that was like 80, 20 for you? And then all of a sudden I'm like, wait, I, like either I, the answer is like, I did nothing and shit. Like I did not have a productive week or it's like, wait, this thing was super high leverage. Why am I not doing more of this? And then it just like it, because it forces me to look at my calendar, like my, my checklisted uh, completed items and then my forward looking calendar, it's just a way to like plan for the next week. So I've actually found that to be the most therapeutic thing where, you know, when I was doing my annual reflections this year in December, I used to have crazy anxiety going into January because I feel like, oh my God, I'm so stressed. Like, am I behind all this stuff? But I realized that this year I didn't have that feeling. And I think it's because I let out all of my thoughts like every week onto this long like notion doc and just writing it down was the most helpful thing to get out of my own head. I, I agree with that. I, I, I think that that helps a lot to be able to like put not just pen and paper, but just type out your thoughts because, you know, we feel a lot of things throughout the workday and a lot of disappointments. But I think that if we go like weeks and weeks and months and probably years without sort of reflecting a lot and like thinking about mm-hmm. our wins, what doesn't go well, how do you measure your, your KPIs of which direction you're heading towards if you don't measure it? Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I do agree with that. 
I think it's very useful to like sort of just reflect upon week by week and kind of re- ask yourself like, mm-hmm. are you are you happy? Are things Definitely. getting done? Are your mission still being achieved? If you're unhappy, why? And I think that just yeah. being able to like reflect and critically think about those things or nuances plays a long role your your mental health. Right. Sure. And like nowadays, the word mental health is thrown around a lot. And for good reason, pandemics mm-hmm. going on, a lot of people feel a certain way. And we're seeing like, you're like, you're like, you're moving to New York, right? A lot of migration is happening. Yeah. You're like, wait a minute, <laughs> life is too short. Why am I staying in this city? Like, what am I doing this and that? I want to travel. I want to experience some things. I want to learn. So yeah. I think that, that that goes a long way. And in terms of like, you know what? I have another thing that I, I was, sure, cause you had asked me like, what were like the lowest of lows? Yeah. You know, like the funny thing is like when, when we started Emmy, we had a vision of like what we wanted the end product to be. But when we started Emmy, we, and we tried to like manufacture internationally at first, we couldn't because COVID happened and international borders shut down. And so we were forced to manufacture with like a US based one that wasn't, they weren't even like instant ramen manufacturers. And when we launched, we actually had to launch with this like you know, what we call internally like V1 of the product, which frankly was just like not at all optimal. It wasn't anywhere close to what our current version is today. And for, you know, the eight or so months that that product was in market, I was probably at like the lowest of lows ever. And part of it is like that whole, maybe it is like an Asian value thing of like, you know, we want to take pride in our work. I was ashamed of that product. I know my co-founder was too. Like it definitely appealed to a certain demographic but amongst like the Asian community where we grew up eating instant ramen, I would have given it like a four out of 10, maybe like a three out of 10. And it's actually one of the reasons why I didn't even approach any of the Asian communities. that I'm like, even though like most of my network probably is like Asian people, Asian hustle network, I admittedly have not posted a single time in there about Emmy because I was ashamed of that product. And I had to go to like coaching, AKA it was like therapy effectively to talk about this because I was just like, I was basically beating myself up every single day. Like I was giving myself so much negative self-talk. I was getting like depressed about it. And my coach had to really help me like reorient a lot of the ways I was thinking about the company. And, and yeah, at the same time, I was also running like customer support at the time. So you can imagine like me dealing with all the CX emails about it. Um, it just wears down on you. And I think Will Smith has like an amazing biography that just came out with Mark Manson. And he kind of talks about this where he's just like, you know, every single day we deal with entropy. Like the world is kind of like decaying slowly. You are decaying slowly. And there's really no need for you to like wear yourself down even more with your own negative self-talk. Like the world's going to do that already. It's, it's kind of a shame if you're doing that to yourself. And, and that really resonated with me. So I think to anyone out there, like, like, you know, don't, don't bring yourself down. I, I'm not like a motivational talk person. I don't know the right words for this, but just know that like, yeah, it for sure will get better. And and don't, don't like, don't bring yourself down. You, you don't need to do that to yourself. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that story because I, I think myself, at least I have those moments where I'm, I, I bring myself down and I try to yeah. step out of it as fast as I can. I'm just like, wait a minute. I'm just wasting time. <laughs> you know, like, I'm really yeah. sorry for yourself for too long. It's okay if you're sorry for yourself, but don't, don't take up a whole day or a whole week on it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm curious for you. Did, do you have like a practice yourself too? Like um, to manage yeah yeah very similar to yours i, I also reflect every uh, i actually reflect every sunday because saturday nice. is like the days where i'm just like it's not it's not friday it's not i don't have to worry about starting <laughs> the week i'm just gonna blink out saturday that saturday is my blink out nice. day right no one can touch my saturday but sunday is yeah, yeah. when i wake up i start to feel kind of stressed and i'll man like 
this up for me. How many weeks gonna be heavy? So I do a lot of reflection as well. Like I, I write things down, things that go well, things that I'm grateful for, things that I can improve upon, and I try to change right. my routine. I'm a very routine based person. Like nice. without routine, I don't even know what the hell I'm doing my time. I just like, <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> for sure. So it's so out of curiosity too. I I know the supply chain issue is is causing a lot of spike increases, especially in food crisis across the world. How has that affected your business and your business yeah. model? And like, how are you able to communicate a possible increase in prices and product to your customers where way in a way where they're like, dang, like I understand, like it's not going on too drastically. I think we've mm-hmm. seen some prices of customer consumer goods, especially food, right. sharply increase. Like the price of beef, the price of chicken, you're like, dang, this is so darn expensive now. How have you and Emmy have been dealing with the supply chain issue that's causing like inflation across the world. Yeah, it's crazy. We, actually, like even this morning, I had to have a call with my co-founder because it's another, I think part of it is a champagne problem where we have like crazy demand in January, December, because it's it's cold, people want ramen. But, you know, we thought we would get shipments. And because of what's going on with freight right now, we're seeing delays from what we thought would be like one week stretching out to four weeks. Also like a container, um, like a boat container, you know, maybe it would have costed you like, seven to 10 grand, you know, a couple years back. Now it's like tripled, you know, it's like 30 grand, it, you know, maybe 40 grand. So it's, everyone is feeling this right now. And I wish I had the right answer here because for us, we haven't had to necessarily raise prices. We've just, unfortunately, we just had to eat that margin uh, decrease, but it's more around actually the stretching of like shipping timeline where people might order a product, but we went on back order and we thought we were going to get product in time, but because of the delays now, like a customer gets their order two to three weeks later than they thought. That's just a terrible experience. For us, proactive communication seems like the obvious answer. And really, that is the only thing we can do is you send a heartfelt message. You know, Usually, it always has to be from one of the co-founders that kind of just explains our situation. And we're not afraid to just say, look, we're a very small, like we're a small team. Here is exactly what is going on with international freight. And then like at the end of the day, it's still on us. It's not like we're trying to you know, blame someone else. It's our responsibility for not planning ahead, even including like including those delays. But, you know, just want to let you know that this is happening. And I think usually customers have been really understanding. Whenever we send one of those large campaigns, a large portion of the customer base will reply and just say, look, we totally get it. Like this is how we see this happening. Some will be like, look, this is unacceptable. And, and that's totally fine. We'll give them a refund. Um, and we ask for their forgiveness and we say, maybe you'll give us a chance later on. So Hopefully we'll get better at this. Yeah. I don't know the right answer though. But it sounds like you have a really loyal community, which goes a long way. Right. And definitely, I think a lot of things you said are good nuggets for us here too. Is that transparency and being authentic to your, your, your community, your, your audience base, your consumers, right. What's going on? Because Mm -hmm. I think if we don't understand what the context of it, a lot of us kind of resort to like anger and confusion is like, why are they doing this? Right. But I think, I think as you take the time to be clear to to your customers, it does go a very long way. And I think for the most part, if you're keeping up with the news, like you'll know the, about the supply chain issue, what's going on, what's causing that. So I really appreciate that that nugget. Also, I do want to throw out one, one thing too that I saw this morning. I actually saw you guys published in Business Insider this morning as like the fastest oh. product... <laughs> 
to keep an eye on in like 2022 or something. Oh, nice. I did not see that. I got to check it out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, usually, well, no, thank you. I, I don't know how true those are. Sometimes those are like really clickbaity titles or I don't know what metrics are going off, but. Uh, I um, did see like front and center, it, it, your face and your partner's <laughs> face, like right in the article uh, of this insider. Yeah. So huge congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, yeah, no, for sure. I think we, you know, obviously wouldn't be here without our customers. And I think, just, yeah, really grateful that people are enjoying the product and yeah, man, it's been crazy to get to this point. Like I, I still remember like two years ago, just like sitting in our kitchens and there was like one incident where like one of our earliest formulations was like, it had like too much fiber. And so it would make you have to basically like take a shit, like really badly. <laughs> and like me and KHN, like we couldn't like in order to speed up the cycles, instead of making the noodles and then testing it, we just mixed all the ingredients into like a shake with water. And then we just like cheers each other and we just drink the shakes. And then we would just like wait and then see, we had to go to the bathroom. And that was like a whole week. And I remember that that was like, Oh my God, we're not going to make it. Like we're so screwed. So it, it's honestly like, it's crazy to, to remember those times and then to come to like where we are now. It, it, it's definitely night and day. Those are, those are the best times, right? And yeah, that's you're true. still early stage two. And it's like, I want to give advice to like first time founders document pictures and like experiences totally. because you need to be able to look back and be like, wow, we have, we've grown up. We got a long <laughs> way, you know? <laughs> exactly. No, I think, you know, like taking photos so important and videos. I wish, I almost wish we had someone like, you know, a third person who like just documented everything. Now we're, we're all now, even internally, we're trying to operate like a media company. Like we brought on, you know, our own creative director, a creative producer, we're just trying to tell more stories uh, about the brand and hopefully you'll see more content coming out this year. Yeah, that's, that's, that you're doing it right. Absolutely. I think content is key for a product mission based company. So I think you're doing mm-hmm. it right. So Kevin, we have one final question. And that question is what is one advice that you want to give to a founder that wants to do something that's label impossible, but they, they believe that it's possible. So what advice would you mm-hmm. want to give them? Whoa, that is an interesting one. Wow. I think the first thing, well, it's okay. I know a lot of people don't like Elon Musk because like some people think he's like a terrible person, but I think what he just does extraordinarily well is he does question everything down to like, you know, quote unquote first principles is like, he doesn't care what has existed before. He will literally like keep pushing you and challenging you until you figure out how to reduce like the cost of something or you invent something. I think with our you know, when we were thinking, when I was thinking about like Emmy in the early days, it was easy. It would have been easy for us to just like listen to the experts because these are like food scientists. They have tons of experience. We even had to like network through multiple connections just to get to like the expert who then would just be like, no, this is not possible. But I think when you, when you like from there, we, we basically were just like, okay, well, let's go on YouTube and like watch how to make instant ramen. And then let's read research papers and like translate them from like Japanese and Chinese into English. And if, when you just try to like learn it from scratch, you'll, I think you'll just realize that, I think you called this out earlier. It's like, no one really knows what they're doing. They just, you know, everyone's kind of just like faking it along the way. And you can do that. You can totally just learn it from your own first principles and you'll probably figure it out. So I, I don't think maybe that's not the best advice, but that's kind of what we did. So that's like the best anecdotal advice I could give. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's good advice. That's definitely good advice. Definitely question everything. 
Because I think that personally, my most personal philosophy is that everything can be done, done better. And that honestly, there's really nothing too impossible out there. Just takes yeah. a little bit of be naive, adventurous, persistent, and stubborn to get things done. Right. Exactly. And you definitely shown that with your products. So I'm left, I'm definitely very much looking forward to your future success. I'm looking forward Thank to you. your nonstop ads that plays on my, my TikToks. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we don't have to run ads, you know, in the long-term future, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're absolutely doing well and you I mean, you've done so much in such a short amount of time. You're a great Thank person. You. Like we're so happy to have you in the podcast. So how can Thank our listeners so find out more about you and reach out to you online? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Kevin Lee, me, Kevin L E E M E. Um, that's my personal and then Emmy, you know, emmyeats.com. We're just called Emmy, but we couldn't get the domain. It's too expensive. So we got emmyeats.com. <laughs> if you want to learn more about the product. For anyone listening, I, I didn't even talk about it at all. It's the world's first low carb, high protein and fully plant-based instant ramen. Yeah. So thank you so much. I wish you the success, the best of success too with Asian, Asian Hustle Network and everything you're building. Brian, it's honestly an inspiration. I know you invited me here, but you know, I've obviously watched you build this for a very long time. I have a lot of friends that are a part of that community. And this is the first chance that I could tell you honestly why, you know, I personally have never posted in there because of my, you know, a lot of these like that shame I was carrying. So this is very therapeutic from my end too, just to be able to talk to you about this stuff. I'm so gonna hold you accountable. For me just, that forum. I'm gonna hold you accountable <laughs> and share your story after this into the community. Oh man. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it, dude. Yeah, thank you so much. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.